Well, today we're going to continue in our Colossians series, and we've been talking about this concept of Jesus being at the center of everything we do, and we've talked about Jesus being at the center of our efforts last week. Before that, as Jesus is the center of all of our hope. And today we're talking about Jesus being at the center of our life. Now today we're thinking a lot about life, that mothers obviously give life, but there's a life that only Jesus can give. And that's about as much layover as I can have between Mother's Day and the sermon today. It's, it's not really a Mother's Day sermon, but we do have this important concept. We think about Christ-centered uh, life and knowing that Jesus gives us something that nothing else and the world can give. Now, Christ-centered life, living with Jesus at the center as, uh, at the, uh, of your life as a Christian seems pretty intuitive, pretty basic, but we often forget that fundamental fact. And it's so easy to get distracted. You might go through these dry spells in life where you start looking elsewhere for fulfillment. You wander, you have a season of hardships, or maybe you're just deceived by the things of this world, but make no mistake that when you live with Jesus at the center, that Jesus truly is the center of your life. And today we'll see three major principles of a Christ-centered life, that Jesus is your foundation, that he is the fullness of life, and that he is the true source of freedom in your life. So if you aren't open yet, open up to the book of Colossians. We're going to read uh, to start here in chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. But please pray with me as we, uh, as we read the Word of God. So Lord, we just pray now as we think about this life centered on you, uh, God, that you would speak to us now. And just as in the ways that we've been distracted or deceived in life, help us remember that everything we need is in you that you are the true source of life, that you are our foundation, God, that you make us full and complete, and that you are our source of freedom. We pray this now in your name, Jesus, and speak to us now through your Holy Spirit. Amen. Colossians 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 6 through 15. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith and the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the circumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. 
And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is some really important text that we read today. And and in that, as, as I said, we see the whole basis for the Christian life. And this seems too obvious to say, but we often need to be reminded. The basis, the foundation of our Christian life is Christ. That we need to look nowhere else than Jesus. And we're reminded in verse 6 that just as we received Christ Jesus as Lord, we're to continue our lives in Him. Now, the earliest Christian confession we can make is that Jesus is Lord. You're not a Christian before that point, and you can only become a Christian after that confession. To say that that Jesus is Lord is confessing that he is, in fact, God of the universe and God or ruler of your life. And the problem is sometimes we forget that after we've professed that at salvation. As I said, you can become distracted, you can become deceived through various moments or seasons of your life. But the reality is what we read here is that we are confessing or we're receiving Jesus Christ who is the Lord. And even if you don't confess that, it doesn't change the truth. That whether you believe Jesus is Lord or not doesn't change the fact that he is Lord. As a Christian, you're simply aligning yourself with reality. And what we read is as you place your faith in him, continue only in him. That the Christian life is not built around a system of rules, or a set of concepts or ideas, it's built around a relationship with Jesus. When you start with him, you continue with him. And there's many ways we get it wrong, and we'll be reading a lot about this more as we go through the uh, scripture today, but we often think that what we do can bring us closer to God, a system of rules, or maybe what we believe. And both of those things are important. Now, It's important to note, though, that without a faith in Christ, they're meaningless. And you may be the most moral person in the world, and there's many good people in this world, morally, who are not Christians. It doesn't bring them closer to God. In the same way, there's many theologians who know deep truths about Jesus, probably more than we will ever know, but they don't confess him as Lord. And so it doesn't matter. They're important, but they're not most important. Most important is continued faith, a relationship with Jesus. We see that as you're rooted and built up in him, you're strengthened, or you should be rooted and built up with him, strengthened in the faith as you are taught and overflowing with thankfulness. These are three ways to explain what it means to continue your life in Jesus. And we have two metaphors used here, rooted and built up. One is from the agriculture Realm, which means that as the plants grow, they grow deep into the soil, and that's what makes them strong. And in the same way as we have faith in Jesus, we should be growing deep, rooted in Him. Now, once we've established that foundation, then on that we can build. And this is more of a construction metaphor that we're building on this strong foundation. As Jesus said at the end of the Sermon Mount, that the one who hears my words and puts them into practice is like a wise builder who builds on the rock, that builds on Jesus. 
that we're to be built up in him, that when any storms of life may come our way, we do not blow over. You stay rooted and built up in him and then strengthened in the faith as you are taught. And what this means is that you keep building, that we're not a half-finished project. And I grew up in a household, and bless my father, he, he was really good at half-finished projects. Where he'd get going, and he'd have a really good foundation, and then he'd stop. And if you uh, talk to Mandy, I'm one that I have a hard time quitting things, probably because of that. I'll stay up till 3 in the morning until something is done, because I just need to have it finished. I can't live with those half-finished projects. But that's essentially what Paul is saying to us here, is that we're to be strengthened in the faith, to continue in that, and to keep building on the foundation, to stay centered in Christ, grounded in the truths of the Bible, and not looking for something else. Continue what you started, grow in what you know. And that will bring you to a state of overflowing with thankfulness. Now, thankfulness is a very common theme in uh, Paul's epistles, but especially in Colossians, we see it many times. Seven times, I believe, through the whole book. But, but thankfulness is important in the Christian life because it really becomes an outward proof that something is working in you that a heart of thankfulness is a good litmus test for Christian health. It tells you really your status as a believer, that as you grow in your faith in Christ, you understand the many blessings that he's given you. First, the blessing of salvation, of course, but also the sustaining of life as you go along. And it's often said that the Christian life should be overflowing with thankfulness, hope, and joy. These are really the trio of outward aspects that reflect the reality of what's happening to us inside. And if you're a Christian and someone at some point has said to you, there's something different about you, it's probably because they noted your thankfulness, your hope, or your joy. But thankfulness is one that really reveals how healthy you are as a Christian. And if you're one who is constantly complaining, always finding the wrong things in life, having the pity parties, feeling cheated, never satisfied, wanting more, you may not understand all that Christ has done for you. There's that point that maybe you're not as healthy, that you're not as strengthened in the faith as you may think you are. And we all have the seasons. I'm not saying that no one should ever complain in life because it's kind of a natural indication, but it's not a healthy part of Christianity. In fact, one of the indicators that people are falling from the faith or falling from God is that they are unthankful. In Romans 1.21 is that we read of these people that knew God, at least conceptually they knew of him, but they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him. And their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. We need to maintain a spirit of thankfulness. And that then becomes the outward, visible proof of what's happening inward, the rootedness and the building up on Christ. Now, we do have a warning in uh, verse 8. As we think about Jesus as our foundation of life, that we should not give in to the things that we're hearing in this world. That we're to see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than Christ. We look at the, the last part of that, human tradition, elemental spiritual forces. Basically, it means anything that's not from God. It could be something we've made up, 
in our own minds, or it could be something that a spiritual force that isn't God, or at least isn't in uh, complete and true service to God, is telling you. We have to be careful that we're not taken captive or enslaved to this hollow and deceptive philosophy. And hollow here really just means void of truth. It's pointless. It leads to nothing. And deceptive means is it seems good, it seems right, but it's actually destructive. And really what he's talking about, in a nutshell, is false teaching. And it can come in many different forms, but the issue isn't philosophy in general, which is really how we think about life and our experience in life, but it's hollow and deceptive philosophy. And we see two common forms of hollow and deceptive philosophy in our day and age. If you could generalize everything, and and one form is this. You're perfect just the way you are. There's no such thing as mistakes. There's no such thing as failure. Or even if there is, there's no consequence to that. And it's a really well-meaning philosophy, I think. And the, the point is not that we should always beat ourselves up and, 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 and make ourselves feel bad about every mistake, but every Christian at some point needs to admit that they've made a mistake. And through mistakes, we may learn. And through mistakes, we may see our need for help. But the idea of sin is repulsive to much of the world because of this philosophy. You might see that friend on Facebook who's really well-meaning. They're not trying to spread deception, but they'll post that cute graphic that says, there are no mistakes. Everything that's happened into your life has made you who you are, and who you are is perfect. It might make you feel warm and fuzzy, but it's not truth. It's not truth. Every person must admit at some point that they've sinned, and it doesn't make you a terrible person. It makes you a person. And that's what makes us all equal before God, is that all have sinned. But giving into this hollow and deceptive philosophy that everyone's perfect by themselves means they do not look for help. They do not look for a savior. And it becomes destructive. The other is this. And this is another common one in many different ways, that you yourself can determine your truth. That you decide truth in your universe and every person has their own set of truths. Well, that's dangerous. It might make you feel good, but it's dangerous because then anyone can be God, including yourself. The reality is that only God is God. Jesus himself is. Is God, And we need to be careful, if Jesus is the foundation of our lives, that we're not taken captive by any hollow or deceptive philosophy that's not from him. That we look only to Jesus for the source of truth. And the point is this, if you're building on anything in your life but Jesus, if Jesus is not your foundation, at some point, whatever you're building will fall. Your life will fall if you're not building on Jesus. As we go on in the text, we see the second point today is that Jesus, only Jesus, brings us a fullness of life. That for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Now, there's two forms of fullness we see in this first, in this, uh, these two verses. And the first is that Jesus is fully and completely God. 
Now, that's something every Christian, I think, has come to realize. I hope you have at this point. It's imperative that you do, that Jesus is God. Now, it's something we kind of take for granted, and we fly by that point and, and take it at face value, but it's really hard, I think, to understand for early Christians because something happened relatively recently in their lives that Jesus, maybe in their own lifetimes, had become, uh, that he, he had the incarnation, that he, he took on flesh. That when he took on flesh, many thought that Jesus had, had forsaken of himself something of God. That if he's like me and you, certainly it means he would have sinned or maybe he would have given something up. But the word full here really means complete, lacking nothing. When you think about a glass being filled with water, it doesn't mean it's filled almost to the brim. It means it's filled over the brim. It is 100% full. And when Jesus took on bodily form, he is still 100% God. And something that, that's kind of unique about the incarnation is that it's permanent. And sometimes I think we can forget that, that Jesus is still in bodily form in heaven. And he will always and forever be in bodily form. And it gives hope to us that one day we may be raised in bodily form to heaven and resurrected with him. That's that first idea that we must understand before we have a fullness in life, that Jesus is fully and completely God. There's nothing lacking. And then when he lives in you, you've also been brought to fullness. That he gives you a fullness of life which lacks nothing. There's nothing more we could want in this world as we sang this morning. It's a remarkable in a profound point, but it's exactly what Jesus said he was going to do in his ministry, in this world, and comparing himself against the things of this world. In John 10, he says, the thief, meaning Satan, he comes to steal and kill and destroy. There's nothing valuable, no matter how we may deceive you. But Jesus says, I have come to give you life and give you life to the full. That if you live in Jesus, there's nothing more you can want. You no longer feel empty in any way. And then we talk about philosophy, we think about the human experience, the base of it is to search for purpose and fulfillment. And what we're finding is that Jesus gives you both. There are no substitutes. There's nothing you can add to it. And guys, if you really think, if you just get that bigger boat that your life is going to be complete, it's, it's not going to work. You get the new job, you get the new house, you get the new hobby or maybe the new hairstyle or self-renewal and reinventing yourself. It, it doesn't work. The only thing that makes you full is Jesus. And the truth about contentment, whatever it is you think you need, if you're not content now without it, you won't be content then with it. Only Jesus makes you full. Only Jesus brings you to contentment. And there's nothing that compares to knowing him. Just as Jesus is fully God, believers are fully complete in him, and nothing lacks in salvation. Now, the understanding of our salvation may grow over time, and it should. And the appreciation of the blessings that God gives us should grow over time. They may increase, but in Jesus, we already have all we need. Don't go looking for the treasure you already have in Jesus. Jesus brings us to a place of freedom in this life. Before one comes to Jesus, there are three major issues that keep us from God. And one is our own sinful nature. 
Two is the condemnation of the law. And three is the power of Satan and evil forces. We see in verses 11, 12, 13 that that we've been freed from this sinful nature, a life ruled by our sinful nature. Without Jesus, we only have ourself. We're basically slaves to sin because of the depravity of our flesh, that we're bent to do what is wrong. It's not really a matter of if, but always when you become a Christian, you've become freed from that sinful flesh. Now, we may, from time to time, continue sinning. It will be a process through our whole life. But we're no longer ruled by it. We're told in verse 13 that when you were, you were once dead to your sins, but now God has made you alive in Christ. It has raised you from that death. He's freed you from yourself. And it's symbolized in two ways before that. In verses 11 and 12, two uh, religious ceremonial things, if you will. Circumcision and baptism. And, and he's using these to explain that the physical acts of these are okay, but it's not truly what frees you. It's what Jesus does. That circumcision, for an example, is a symbolic act of an inward reality. Now, there's a lot of emphasis placed on circumcision in this time for Jews who are pressuring Gentiles to do it, and there's a lot of other scriptures that talk about that dynamic. But the reality is that circumcision itself is just an act. It's not really what brings you into grace with God. And even God himself said that in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, a few times, God said that he did not desire the circumcision of the flesh, but the circumcision of the heart. And he said, stop being such stiff-necked or stubborn people about that. God desires us to be made new. And the, the, the act of circumcision was really the first step in a covenantal relationship with God, something built on a promise, for the Jew at least. It was what, the act that set them apart from the world. But what we read in verse 11 is that we were circumcised with something that couldn't be done by human hands, but circumcised in the heart in a way that only Jesus could do it. That in him, our whole self was, that was ruled by the flesh, and flesh here means our moral compass in a sense. It's not the physical flesh. But our whole selves that were ruled by our flesh was put off when we were circumcised by Christ. In other words, not a part of us went missing, but all of us was renewed. We're freed from ourselves. And the second way he symbolizes this is through baptism. And this is very much the same way that baptism in itself is a commandment of God, we should do it, but the physical act of baptism isn't magical. It doesn't make you more righteous. I mean, if dunking below the water made you a good person, then I guess the U.S. Olympic diving team would all be really good people, right? They're in and out of the water dozens of times a day. It's, it's not the physical act, but again, it's a symbol of the inward reality. That when you are baptized, it represents you standing there, a sinful person who dies and is buried with Christ and raised to new life. He makes you a new person. And, and I'll just let the scriptures uh, speak for themselves in that concept. In, in Romans 6, it talks to us what baptism means. Romans 6, 4 through 7, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may too live a new life. 
For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self, who we used to be, was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin may be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Jesus frees us from sin. And while we were dead in our sins, he made us alive in Christ. That's where we understand that the Christ-centered life isn't about just turning over a new leaf, finding a new direction. It's about receiving a new life. And as a wise man once said, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And we could be freed from our sinful nature. But only Jesus can do that. We're also freed from the guilt and the condemnation of the law. Verse 13 and 14. That when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Now this this is a pretty cool verse. Uh, There's a lot of really deep truth that we can understand when it comes to a Christ-centered life, that we're freed from the condemnation of the law. Now, this is really speaking against legalism, which we'll talk more about later, but it's the basic concept that you can do enough for God that he owes you something, that it's this contractual relationship with him. It assumes that God's blessings come from doing good. And this is an ever-present danger for Christians. It has been for the centuries before Jesus and after today in many different forms, legalism has come. But the reality is that everyone has sinned. Once you sin once, once you break one part of the law, you're guilty of all of it. Now, Jesus didn't come just to get rid of the law. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law for us. And this is this interesting change here that the law existed really for two reasons. And the first is to show us the character of God. We really see the holiness of God through the law. But second is to illustrate our failure to measure up to God's standards. It illustrates our sin. And so with the law, there's a guilt that comes and there's a condemnation. The charge for breaking the law is death. But Jesus canceled our charge and our legal indebtedness. And this is kind of the language of saying, if we broke the law, it's like saying, God, I owe you my life. I owe you death. But now, when Jesus cancels that, it's like he's crumpling up the IOU and saying, you're free of that. You're free of that guilt to the law. And then he took away the condemning force of the law. Not not just took it away, but he nailed it to the cross. And the the language that's used here is a lot like uh, the the uh, titleist that would hang above a criminal on the cross when they're crucified. Jesus had one, uh, and it would be their charge of death. And really what it meant is that when the criminal died, they were free from the indictment that was hanging above their head. The penalty was death. And when they paid that penalty, they were freed from the charge. But what we read is that Jesus took our penalty, and he nailed it to the cross above him, that he paid for our death. And now we're released from that condemnation, that we can live free. 
Through these metaphors, Paul is explaining that the work of Christ, the forgiveness of sin, cancels the condemning charges of the law. That he's already paid for those accusations in full, and we are free from it. And now he uses another standard to judge us, not what we do or do not do, but our faith in what Christ did for us. And now everything we do is overflowing with thankfulness and joy. And we serve God not out of obedience, not begrudgingly, but out of love. Love now becomes the law. We also see that he offers us freedom from Satan and his powers. Verse 15, that having, uh, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now this verse is really cool. There's a lot of really cool truth to this. But we understand that the, the power of Satan is to tempt and to deceive, to, to trick us essentially into death. He wants to keep us in our sin and, and create for us a spiritual guilt in a lot of ways that draws us away from Christ. But we know that Jesus on the cross, uh, he had freed us from the power of Satan, that he conquered him through what happened. This is important in spiritual warfare is we always have to be aware of the reality that, that especially when you're a Christian, Satan will try to continue to deceive you, maybe even more than before. But you must not be afraid of Satan if you're a Christian, because that's what Satan wants. He wants you to fear him. And in many ways, fear is just another form of worship. When you are in Christ, you must understand that what Jesus did on the cross defeated Satan and his powers against us. Be aware, but you must not be afraid. And fear only the Lord What's cool about this verse is the word disarmed. Now, we often just think of it as, as taking the weapon away, but there's some deeper meaning here in this context. The word disarmed could also be disgraced. And this is a word that they used when it talked about one kingdom or one ruler taking over another. And let's say one kingdom uh, marched in and defeated another king. The first thing they would do is they would strip that king, one of their weapons, but also of their clothing. And what that meant was that they would often be dressed in these royal garbs, and now they're saying, you no longer have power. You are a common person. You are like a peasant. And so what Jesus did on the cross was disarmed all the powers and authorities of this world. That Satan thought he won when Jesus was hanging on the cross naked. But it's actually through that that Jesus turned the tables. And that was the moment that Satan lost, that he disarmed or disgraced his enemies and exposed them to public spectacle or public shame, as we see. He stripped them of their royal facade and said, you maybe looked like a ruler, but you're not. You're nothing. And he exposed them for what they really were. Satan lost that day. And none should follow him. None should fear him. And they're powerless now because of what Jesus did on the cross, cross for us. That's the reality is Jesus is our foundation. He is our fullness and he is our true freedom. If you are in Christ, you need nothing else. Look only to him. And why would we look anywhere else? It's a question 
I don't know that we can answer, but, but we often do. <laughs> we often do. We forget that. We start looking to the things of this world to fulfill us and, and think there's something more, there must be something different. There's not. But for as long as there's been anything valuable, there's been counterfeits. And this is kind of a, a bonus uh, section this morning. We're going to go through it kind of at a high level. But the false substitutes of Christian living. And this is a section maybe I'll preach on in the future because it itself is its own important sermon. But these false substitutes are things that seem good and seem right, but they simply aren't. And the first of them is legalism, as we talked about before. We'll go through this kind of quickly. But in, a, in, in the, the highest sense, legalism means doing something to earn God's favor, to feel good about yourself, to earn some sort of righteousness in the world. Doing something. And as we read in verse 16 and 17, Paul says, Therefore, now this is again, if you believe that Jesus is your foundation, all your fullness and all your freedom, therefore, if you believe that, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. It's the belief that Jesus is the center of your righteousness. Now, legalism means that you are the center of your righteousness. It's a transactional relationship, as we said before. And it's trying to either add to the work of Jesus or work despite of Jesus. And neither of them are effective or true. In either case, you believe the cross was not enough for you. And the examples he gives here are really about like dietary, uh, customary, ceremonial laws. And he speaks about these, uh, these feasts and these fasts and the new moons. And, you know, God gave some instructions on that. And then people added a whole bunch. And it was nearly impossible to keep track of all the fasts, the fasts and the holidays and the lunar schedules. Uh, but that was what, one, what some people used to measure themselves against others as Christians, is you have to keep all the rules. One of them were the Sabbath rules which is the most expansive part of Jewish custom. When they think about if you were to rest on the Sabbath, what does that mean for every single part of my life? And tell you how many steps you could take on the Sabbath, what kind of food you could eat. And it was just so crazy, it was hard to keep it all, but some thought that that was the way to God, was legalism. Well, the problem is that these laws are just a shadow of what was to come. That they were a reflection, in a sense, of Jesus that Jesus is the true object of righteousness and that he came to fulfill the law for us. The solution then is to understand our reality is in Christ. Our righteousness is in him. And instead of focusing on what you can do for God, you simply need to accept what God has done for you. And the second false substitute we read is mysticism. And experiencing something is essentially what this is. It's about spiritual experiences. It says in verse 18 and 19, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. For such a person also goes into great details about what they have seen, and they're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. This is, the issue is not having a spiritual experience, but using that as a way to position yourself over others. It's essentially creating a ladder. 
and relying on those religious experiences to find your worth in the body of Christ rather than just taking your place in the body of Christ is that we are all equal under the head. The warning here is not to let those, quote, special people disqualify you from the faith. He uses two examples here, the worship of angels, which really means just finding any kind of spiritual, uh, uh, spiritual interlude between you and God. And also these visions, which is maybe easier for us to understand. It's, it's just that God gives or you, you experience some sort of vision or dream. And this is a way that God can re- reveal truth to people. But I don't think the true issue here is whether or not these are true or false. It's what you do with these spiritual experiences. And the problem then becomes pride, or as we've read here, false humility. That they have an unspiritual mind that puffs up, and that means puffs themselves up with these idle notions that now they're better than others. But this is the real point here to leave with. Spiritual experiences do not equate spiritual maturity. And every person may have different experiences in this life. Mysticism only brings division. It puts one person above another, but the clear truth is that Jesus is the head and we are all connected under him. Keep him as the head. And the last point we're going to touch pretty quick here is asceticism. Now, this is kind of the other side of the coin of legalism. So if legalism is about doing something for God, asceticism is about giving up something for God or denying yourself of something Now, Jesus does call us to deny much in our lives, but we'll we'll talk about the true issue here after we read the scripture, uh, verse 20 through 23. And since he died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as those you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have nothing to do with with things that are all destined to perish, Sorry, these rules which have to do with the things that are destined to perish with use are based merely on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, with their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Really what this is is relying on some sort of uh, religious act to grow, some sort of self-denial that if you can suffer enough for Jesus or if you can give up enough that he's going to love you more. Uh, that's, that's not the way it works, unfortunately. Because the problem here is that they're doing things God didn't ask them to do. They're just making up their own rules. It's, it's based on human understanding and self-imposed rules, as it says. And there's many crazy things ascetics have done through the years to try to prove themselves to God or to others. Maybe they isolate themselves from any interaction with people for decades at a time. Or they live only in a cave because they feel like the comforts of this world shouldn't be, you know, a bed is too comfortable. They might take a vow of silence or beat or whip themselves or extended periods of fasting, all to, quote, prove their holiness to God. But God's probably up there saying, that's, that's really impressive, I guess, but I didn't ask you to do that. It's not bringing you any closer to me. We see one uh, extreme case of Simon the Stylite. This is a man in the early 5th century who spent the last 36 years of his life living on top of a 50-foot pillar. Why? I guess God doesn't even know. But he thought that it was somehow going to bring him closer 
But we really key in on this, that this is self-imposed worship. This is really worship of themselves and what they can do. It's false humility or pride. And the harsh treatment of their body really lacks in any value. It doesn't restrain them from their sensual indulgences. You may try to earn God's favor through self-denial, but you're not really gaining anything. And you may appear wise, you may appear humble, but eventually it might just drive you to do something kind of crazy. The solution is to remember that your old nature has already died with Christ. All of the things you needed to give up are given up when you come into a new nature with Jesus. And there's a place for fasting, and there's a place for discipline, and there's a place for denying ourselves, but it should never be a substitute or a supplement to knowing Jesus. And all of these things are really deceptive because they seem good. And our culture kind of works this way, that if you want to be a good and a virtuous person, you need to align yourself to a very narrow set of ideals. We don't know where they came from. They didn't come from God, but people just decided that this is how you should be. And if you're not, you're a bad person. It comes in some form of legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. So there's one key takeaway today. Normally I give you a handful. There's just one thing I hope you can take away from the sermon today. And I hope this has been made abundantly clear, and this should already be painfully obvious to us. But everything you need for the Christian life is found in Christ. It's really that simple. There's nothing you can add to it. There's nothing that can subtract from it. Everything you need for the Christian life is found in Christ. It's so simple, yet so increasingly profound, because we so often rebel at that notion. But Jesus truly is the foundation of our lives. There is no life apart from him, at least not a life that will last. Only Jesus can bring us to a fullness, to a completion in our life, in which we truly feel we lack nothing. And only Jesus can truly bring you freedom from yourself, from the condemnation, from the law, and from the powers and the deceptions of Satan who was defeated on the cross. Jesus came to offer you something nobody else could. So look nowhere else. Everything you need is found in Jesus. Let's close in prayer today. God, we thank you for the new life you give for the promises we can hold on to. And God, I just do pray for forgiveness for myself, uh, for anyone here who has forgotten that you are all we need, that we're so prone to try to add more or think we need something else to feel full in this life. But Jesus, you're it. You're it. You're all we need. So God, as we go, help us to understand that foundation, that fullness, and that freedom that we experience only in you. We thank you for this precious gift. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.